We're in Romans 15. I'm trying to finish the book of Romans. Hopefully we'll do it uh, next couple of weeks. But as we turn our hearts once again to Romans 15, I just want to read the text of Scripture for us, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes there, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to there's that word, Illyricum, I have a hard time pronouncing that word, I don't know why. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered by coming to you. But now, since I, am no, lo- I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints for, Macedon, uh, for Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will uh, leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So we've been in this series, Paul's heart, looking at at the heart of the Apostle Paul. And so far we've looked at his unifying heart that he covered in verses 7 to 13. We looked at Paul's satisfied heart in verse 14. He talks about us being full of goodness, 
filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. He's addressing those believers in Rome, but by application that applies to us as well. And then he talked about his bold heart in verses 15 to 16. And sometimes the Apostle Paul had to share some very hard things with people in a loving way, but it required boldness to do that. And I'm always appreciative of people who are willing to be bold and share with me things that need to be shared and not, it doesn't always feel good, mind you, but I appreciate it afterwards because that's how we grow, that's how we learn. And then in verse 16 also we looked at his ministering heart. It talked about him being a priest. And we talked the last time about how we're all priests in Christ Jesus. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so it's one thing to think of going to a priest, but did you ever think of yourself as a priest? That's what he says in verse 9. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And even in Revelation 1.6, we looked at, and it says there that, that God has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. So we don't have to go to a mediator to reach God. We don't have to go to somebody who's in between. Don't you like that? I mean, isn't that a wonderful plan? You just go right, right to the Father. Obviously, through Christ, you have to go through Christ, but we don't have a human mediator. Uh, I always thought about that when I was growing up in the Catholic Church. Why do I have to go to confession? Why do I have to go there and sit in that booth and kneel down and, you know, it's been so many weeks before my last confession, you know, and those little screens, you can never see the guy. It's just unnerving. It's like, what's going on over there? Why am I telling this stranger my sins, even though he wasn't a stranger because he was the only priest in the parish and we knew who he was. But it was just, you know, he had this calming voice and, you know, you just felt better about yourself coming out of there. But it didn't do anything. You know, he heard the sins. Half the time I made sins up because I didn't feel I had any worthy to share. So, well, I guess I lied. I did this. I did that. Just, oh, okay. Go say, you know, three Hail Marys, four Our Fathers, and you're good to go. Okay. And you'd go out and you'd kneel down and you'd start, you know, with the first prayer. And within, you know, a couple seconds, your mind's drifting, looking at other people and everything else. But you're kind of just rotely repeat, repeating these prayers and you're done. And you walk out and you're thinking, wow, what was just, what did I just do? It's so wonderful to be in Christ that we don't have to go to a human priest. We don't have to go to a confessional. We can go directly to God, the Father, and confess our sins to him. And you know what? He hears us based upon our relationship with Christ. And so we looked at that rather thoroughly. And then we looked at Paul's glorifying heart in verses 17 to 19. He talked about glorying in Jesus only. And he says that over in Philippians. He says, I count everything else, what, rubbish. But I'm gonna, if I'm going to glory, I'm going to glory in Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31, he says the same thing. Let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. See, there's nothing wrong with boasting. It depends on what you're boasting about. There's nothing wrong with being prideful. 
depends on what you're prideful about. That's so important to understand. And so Paul looked at himself and said, you know what? There's not a lot whole here for me to glory in myself, so I'm going to glory in Christ. He took no credit for himself, which showed us his humility. In verse 18, he says, you know what? This is, this is Christ working through me. He emphasized obedience to the Lord, which talked about not just humility, but faithfulness. He talked about how he maintained his personal integrity because at the end of verse 18, you notice what he says there. He says, by word and deed. In other words, I want you to be able to see in my life word by words and deeds what Christ is doing. So many people just want to want people to hear their words. And then when they're not in front of the people anymore, they're a totally different individual. Someone once told me one time, you know, Pastor, I think you're just a little bit too transparent in the pulpit. Maybe you shouldn't share everything you share, you know, about your marriage and some issues you may have. And I thought, I don't know how else to do it. You know, uh, I mean, what am I supposed to pretend? Uh, You know, I'm in the same boat you folks are. We're all in this together. And we live the Christian life day by day, dependent on the Spirit of God, trusting Him to live the life of Christ through us. And so we need that personal integrity. And then we also looked at Paul had a divine affirmation of his ministry. It says in verse 19, and we'll look at this today too. Now through many signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, he did this. And also he worked rigorously. Well, that brings us to today's message. We got to Paul's, all those hearts. Now we're looking at Paul's missionary heart. And he continues this even into the next chapter. But we're just going to start this message today, and we want to look at the power of Paul's evangelistic work, Paul's missionary work. Here in verses 18 to 20, he begins to explain what Christ has accomplished through him, what he's done under Christ's direction, under Christ's power, and for Christ's glory. You know, so many Christians I find you know, try to be humble. Well, you know, it's not me. And I used to be this way. You know, someone would compliment you and, oh, oh, you know, it's not me. I'm just this, you know, well, what are you? You're a vessel, hopefully, that God is working through. Hopefully, God is using you. And, you know, I once had a a pastor tell me, you know, you don't have to apologize when people compliment you on things. Easy way to get out of that because, you know, some people don't like that kind of attention. It's just say, hey, praise the Lord. (laughs) Because that's where the praise belongs, right? Credit doesn't belong here. It belongs to Christ. And so that's what Paul is doing here. This is personal to Paul. Um, And he, he wants to impress us and make this suggestion. Basically, you know what? If God can use me, what Paul's saying is God can use anybody. I mean, this was a man who used to murder Christians. And God is using him for his glory. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as just, well, I don't know anything. You know, I, I, I don't know what to, I would ever say to anybody about Christ. I don't know this. I don't know that. I could never share about my faith. Yes, you could. Not only can you, you're commanded to. Through your words, through your actions. So let's look at this first point here, the power of Paul's evangelistic work. The power of Paul's evangelistic work. 
Evangelism is a word in Christianity that some people just, they run from. Matter of fact, a couple years ago, we had a conference here called NorCal Fire, and it was all about street preaching and how to get out there. And it really wasn't about that, but that's how they promoted it. And I talked to the guys who put on the conference, and I said, you know, you need to change the emphasis of your conference. Because when I came here, it wasn't about getting on a soapbox out on a corner. It was about learning about God. You learned about theology. You learned about teaching. You learned about how to share your faith, things like that. But it was portrayed in such a way that it appealed to a lot of street preachers. So everybody thought, well, if I go to this conference, they're going to get me out in downtown Palo Alto, and I've got to stand on a corner and hand out tracts or something. So people purposely would not come because they're, they're deathly afraid of that. I don't know why, but they are. It's not my number one list. Uh, number one thing to do on my list, just with my personality. But, you know, I I try to do what I can to share Christ and give out tracts and and witness, even though sometimes it's uncomfortable. It brings up kind of an awkwardness in the conversation when you start telling people about the gospel. But the more you do it, let me tell you, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And the more you do it, God sees your faithfulness in being obedient. And you know what? He brings people, he begins to bring people across your path that are ready for the picking. In other words, God's already been working in their life. And you just kind of start to talk about spiritual things. And man, they're just like all over it and they want to know more. And you have the opportunity even to, to see God draw them to Christ. And what he says here in verse 19 It's very important for us to understand. He says, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, a lot of commentators, when they look at that, those words signs and and wonders or signs and miracles, that's really not the best translation uh, for for that text because it gives the indication that these are different things. And really, it's not. It's basically, you're not looking at signs and then wonders. It's the same thing. In biblical language, a sign is a miracle that has significance through pointing beyond itself to the truth about God or the gospel. That's what a a sign is. It's a miracle. A sign is a miracle. They're one and the same. All of Jesus' miracles recorded... In the, in the Gospels are signs in that sense. He performed them so that they would see beyond the sign and look to him as the Messiah. On the other hand, a, a wonder or a miracle is the same event, but it's kind of you're taking it from a different point of view. You're taking it from the view of the human observer. And when people saw Jesus heal somebody, they went, Wow. I mean, this guy, he was, he was lame for how many years and now he's up walking? Or this individual was blind or this person had leprosy. Wow, they were just in awe. So a wonder is the same event as a miracle, basically. Signs and wonders, it's a sign. But it's more you're, you're seeing it happen and you're just taken back. Matter of fact, Paul, which is interesting, I found this out, Paul only used these words in two other places in all of his writings. And he wrote a significant amount of the New Testament. One was in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And he used those words of himself. And he basically said, you know, signs and wonders or miracles are the things that mark an apostle. That's what Paul said. 
He said, why, why do you have signs and, and miracles? Well, the whole purpose was to mark an apostle in the early church age. To let people know that this is a representative of Christ. Why? Because he's doing the same things Christ did while he was here. They're able to heal people. They're able to raise people from the dead. They're able to do all those things, just as Christ did. The other place, which is rather telling, he uses it, is over in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, you can turn over there, chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. And look at what he says here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in verse 9. Now, he's, he's talking about some future things here, but he says in verse 9, we'll go back to verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And then look at what it says in verse uh, 9. It says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With what? With all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so God sends them a strong delusion and it goes on and on from there. That passage, those passages teach us a couple things about signs and wonders. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of churches today. It's all about the signs and wonders. What's going to happen this morning in the service? Who's going to get healed? Who's going to be raised from the dead? Who's going to be, you know, have their vision brought back? All this stuff. There's churches that that's the focus. They're not teaching the Word of God. It's kind of a sideshow of, of signs and wonders. And people show up. Well, these passages teach us in themselves, signs and wonders prove absolutely nothing. So many people say, oh, we saw this. It happened before our eyes. My answer is, I don't care makes no difference to me. Because they can be done by God or they can be done by, guess what? Demonic powers. Really? Yes. You say, well, do you have any other text to support that? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 7 where it says many will stand before Christ and you look at some of the things that they're recounting saying, hey, why can't I get in heaven, Jesus? In your name, Jesus, I what? Cast out demons. He goes, they go right down the list of sign and wonder kind of things. And yet they are not believers, beloved. So the power that they did those things by was not God's power. It was Satan's power. So be careful. Don't be taken in. It's kind of like a shell game. It's kind of like you're at a carnival and the guy's playing a trick on you. See, Satan wants us to be so focused on signs and wonders, especially in today's society, is that we forget about this. <laughs> we forget about what the Word of God says. Because we're always looking for a new revelation from God, a new sign, a new wonder. 
And we have to realize that, you know what, signs and wonders can be done by God. They can also be done by demonic powers as well. And secondly, the second point I take away from those two verses that Paul shared, one where he said signs are things that mark an apostle, and the other one has to do with the lawless one, but with demonic powers. In the New Testament, miracles are associated with the apostles. That's why he said things that mark an apostle. He didn't say things that mark Christians. He said things that mark an apostle. Well, why were only the apostles marked by signs and wonders? Because they were meant to authenticate the the apostolic message that they were giving out in the days of the New Testament. Remember, Jesus was here. He's doing all these miracles. He's sharing repent, kingdom of God, his hand, all that stuff. Jesus is gone now. And he turns the reins over to this little band of disciples who were basically fishermen, tax collectors and all kinds of things. He gives it to them. And they're trusting in the Spirit of God, and other people are looking, going, well, Jesus is gone. I guess this thing would just fizzle out. <laughs> this Christian thing, it's just going to be, it's going to die. Their leader's dead. It's gone. But when Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his followers this kind of supernatural power, especially his apostles. The power to do exactly what he did. Now, that doesn't mean that God never does miracles. We're not saying that. God is a a miraculous God. If he wants, you know, if you get sick and God wants to heal you, hey, he can heal you. You don't have to go to some sideshow or give somebody a a seed of faith or whatever, $1,000, and, oh, that wasn't enough. Now you've got to give me some more, you know, and then maybe you'll get healed completely. It's ridiculous. That's what's going on today in the name of signs and wonders. And all that does is get us away from what's really important, what's really effective. What is really important, what is really effective? Studying, teaching the Bible as the Word of God. That's what's going to change people's hearts. So today, the New Testament is our apostolic authority, you might say. It's the teaching of the Bible that accomplishes the true miracles that God desires to do today. The miracles that need to be done today, with, to, just to be frank, are not healing the sick. It's not raising the dead. What's needed is the miracle of bringing dead souls to life to believe in the one and only Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then to be changed miraculously by him, to be transformed. I'm interested in those kind of miracles. Someone once asked a preacher whether he could turn water into wine as Jesus did. The preacher thought for a second. He said, you know, I can do something better than that. So the guy got all excited. Oh, what are you going to do? And he told about an alcoholic who had neglected his family. Lived a life of abuse toward his family. But he had been brought to Christ by hearing, by the teaching of the word of God, by hearing the gospel. He was transformed. And the preacher said, you know what? We didn't turn water into wine, but we turned whiskey into milk for his little babies. (laughs) Because that man was transformed. And that's the way it works. 
The power of God is working in and through us. We dare not go out these doors thinking, okay, I got my track and I got all this stuff down and I'm just going to go out and share the gospel and expect all the harvest. No. You have to go out understanding that the word of God is, is more effective than anything. And you have to go out understanding that, you know what, you have to be filled and empowered by the very spirit of God. Well, secondly, not just the power of Paul's evangelistic work, but the scope of it. It says in verse 19, he he describes his work. He says, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I got it, Illyricum, that's how he said I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Um, Students here who are reading Paul's letter have pointed to a problem. The problem is Paul didn't do a lot of evangelistic work in Jerusalem. He didn't. Even though he visited on several occasions. We have no record of him doing anything there. Um, And he did not evangelize Illyricum either. So people say, well, this must be a problem here. No. It's like you saying, you know what? I've been all across the United States. I've been all the way from Canada to Mexico. That's a true statement. Doesn't mean you've been in Canada nor Mexico. But you've been everywhere in between. And that's what Paul is saying here with this statement. He's saying, the scope of my ministry has been all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, everywhere in between. Illyricum, by the way, refers to the region we know as, the, as Bosnia, all the little, uh, the, over there around Yugoslavia, all the, the uh, countries that are there now. And so it, he, he's basically just mapping out an area, saying, here's how God has used me in this way. He started out in the Near East, and he pushed on north and west as quickly as he could to establish sound churches in these regions. That's what was in his heart. What was he doing? He was obeying the command that Christ gave all of us. He was obeying the Great Commission. It was in the the furtherance of this goal that he was planning to go to visit Rome. Even beyond that, if possible. Now, the Great Commission wasn't only given to Paul. You understand that? The Great Commission is given to all of us. All of us. So ask yourself this question. What are you doing to further it? What are you doing to obey the Great Commission that lies before you? Either personally, or if you can't do it personally, by helping those who can. That's why as a church we believe in missions. We believe in raising people up and sending people out. We believe in finding people who have been vetted in foreign countries and saying, hey, you know what, this is a wonderful work. We want to put our resources behind it. I mean, here on this side of glory, we don't benefit from that as a church. I mean, if we want to be stingy and say, you know what? No, we'd rather do this with the money. We could do that, and it would probably benefit us as a people here a lot more than it would someone over in India or someone in Honduras. But see, that's not our perspective. 
The perspective is just like when you're investing your money in God's work, what are you doing? You're not doing it so you can get a return right away. You know that, you know what, when you get to heaven, your reward will be there. And it's the same way for us as a church. We believe in investing in people or even sending people. Well, the third thing here, it's not just the power and scope, but the nature of his evangelistic work. In verse 20, look at this. It's rather interesting what he says. Paul says, and thus I make it my ambition. In other words, this is my desire. This is my driving thing. This is what really gets me going. To preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. See, there's some individuals that God has put a specific burden on their heart. And they aren't content to come to America or to grow up in America and go to Bible college and pastor a church. That's not what they're content. That's not what God has called them to do. God has called them to do something like the Kennels, who went out from this church many years ago to Papua New Guinea. And what the Kennels do in Papua New Guinea, they went on a trip back into the jungle where no white man has ever gone before. The first white man this tribe ever saw was them. I mean, amazing. They had a, a ministry there 30 plus years. And what was their goal? Their goal was to learn the language. Nobody ever heard of the language before. No one knew how to speak the tribe, tribal language of this certain tribe. And the kennels went there. And after being trained by new tribes with some linguistic tools, they went down there and they befriended this tribe who were basically headhunters. And they befriended them. And lo and behold, 30 years later, guess what they're doing? They're down there celebrating the fact that now this tribe, who's mostly believers, can hold in their possession a copy of the New and Old Testament in their own language that nobody else knows. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Well, why did that happen? Because God put it on Bob and Noby's heart to say, you know what? Yeah, we could stay here and help with youth ministry or we could stay here and help with children's ministry or we could stay here and pastor a church, but that's not what God has called them to do. God called them to go to a foreign land somewhere where I'm sure that it was, just gives me the, to think about it, you know. Out there in the jungle, you got bugs, you got all this stuff, you know. But that's what God called them to do. And see, the nature of Paul's work, he was very much that kind of an individual. He said, you know, I don't want to come and just, you know, have a Bible study. I want to get out there with the people that don't know, never heard about Christ. And see, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Do you understand? I mean, God God works his will through us in a myriad of ways. That's been a burden on my heart. I mean, it would be wonderful to go to a place where they don't know Christ and be able to preach the gospel to them. And then God taps me on the shoulder and says, yeah, like at the coffee shop or at the grocery store, right here in the Bay Area. (laughs) I mean, we got people walking all over the place, never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to be diligent not to think, okay, to be a missionary, you have to go to some foreign field, but you can be a missionary right here. You're called to be a missionary right here where you live. He supports this idea in verse 21 by quoting out of, of Isaiah fifty-two fifteen. Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach 
the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He's not interested in that. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. There's something exciting about knowing that you're sharing the gospel with somebody who's never heard it. Never heard it. And living in the Bay Area, there are a lot of people, beloved. I talk to people every day almost that have never heard the gospel. Because it's not in their cultural background. It's, they're of a different religion. And you begin to share it with them. And you just share a little bit. And they're kind of blown away. You really believe that? Yeah. I mean, this, and you, you, you kind of launch out into your testimony. You share how God has changed your life and how he's forgiven you. And you can see it on their faces. Wow, this is really interesting. <laughs> and God will use that. So he says that's the, the nature of his ministry. See, some people are called to build by God, to build on the foundation that other people have laid. Some people are that. But Paul wasn't. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he says just that. Remember? He says, I planted the seed. And then what's he say? Apollos watered it. But what? God made it grow. So you have people who are planting seeds out there where there is no seed. You have other people coming along and taking that seed and watering it and feeding those new believers or whatever. They're all part of God's ministry. And that's where you have to be open to that. I'm reminded of what David Livingston, a great missionary, said when he was representing himself, presenting himself to the London Missionary Society. And they said, well, where do you want to go? And he answered this, anywhere, as long as it is forward. In other words, you know, he, he reached Africa like no other missionary. And he, he made certain remarks about when he got there. When he reached Africa, he recorded his impressions. He said he was haunted by the smoke of a thousand villages stretching off into the distance. In other words, he realized all these people have never heard of Christ. And here I am, and I have the truth. I mean, he had his work cut out for him. I don't see how any true Christian can be at ease at home where there are billions of people who have yet to hear of Jesus Christ. I don't see how any true Christian can be okay with not sharing their faith when you realize every day people cross our path who are lost and dying and on their way to hell and have never heard the gospel of Christ. See, that's the burden that we have to ask God to put on our hearts. That as a church, you know, he's put us here for a reason. It's not just to have church every Sunday. It's to get out there where you work, where you play, where you travel, whatever you do, and you're, you're constantly representing Christ and you're constantly giving out the message that, you know what, Christ still saves today. Because you've seen it as people have taken the gospel out from this place to the farthest part of the world. Whether it's with the Nelsons in Thailand, the folks over in India. There are pagans who are living there in the darkest spiritual night. And now they have the light of the gospel shining upon them. There's people who have been in despair and now they have hope. There's people who have been liars all their life, and now they're, they're, they're turned in, they're transformed by the power of God into men and women of truth. 
There's people who have lived lives of just being loose morally, and now they have become righteous. They've become, become upright citizens. There's even those who have been lazy, have had no real goals in life at all, and all of a sudden Jesus captures their heart and they realize, wow, I have to do something. And you find them living in a more industrious way, not just for them, but for his glory. That's what we're called to do. And that's what Jesus said in in John 14, 12. He said, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. And guess what? He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And people say, well, that means more miracles. That means, no, it doesn't. As I said before, what's the greatest miracle that God does today? It's transforming the human heart. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, we're told that angels in heaven rejoice whenever a sinner comes to Christ. So stop and think about it. Should it not be our goal for his glory to work faithfully and industrially to see that happen, to see people come to Christ? This was the very heart of Paul. And it should be our heart as well. Well, quickly here, verses 22 to 20, 33 there, he covers his planning heart. He talks about planning. You know, ministry doesn't just happen. Uh, regardless of whether Paul actually made it to Spain or not, we can learn that he had plans to go there. Uh, Ray Stedman points out a couple points. He says, first of all, there's a place for planning. He says, some Christians act as if believers should sail through life on autopilot, expecting God to direct their lives in a supernatural way apart from any direct involvement from them. They think planning is wrong. You know, Paul did not think that way. He didn't. He was open to God's special guidance as he received it. And you can learn that as you read through the book of Acts and see how God directed him to certain places and directed him away from other places. He obeyed God's leading. But he also made plans. And one of those plans, which was important to his thinking, was to carry the gospel to the far corners of the known Roman world, even to Spain. He had planned to go to Spain for some time. And he was still pursuing this goal at the time of writing the book of Romans. So there's a a place for planning. Secondly, Ray Stedman points out, there's a need for flexibility in planning. Do you ever meet planners? Usually they're, they're engineers or architects who have no flexibility. They come up with a great plan, but then you kind of tweak, go to tweak their plan. It's like, no. They just have an adverse reaction to it because this is their plan. They have no flexibility in that. Paul was not that way. Paul made plans, but he was also flexible. Um, He did not have a timetable, per se. Stedman says this, He went according to the way God opened the doors. You know, if God's leading you down a certain path, just... Go before the Lord and make sure that he's the one that's leading you. And if he is leading you, if you come to a closed door, guess what? If he doesn't open the door, he ain't leading you there. It's it's not rocket science. It's pretty simple. 
You know, if you have to do all this work to get around hurdles as you're going through a process of of planning and you're not flexible to your plan, God can't use you in that situation. You always have to be flexible. If you ever go on one of our missions trips, you'll learn the key to having a good time on a mission trip, ask Sam, is to be flexible. Sometimes you're in places and the weather doesn't work out. Other times you, you, know, you buy tickets to go to a certain country and the, you know, the country, the, the upheaval, so you can't go. You, know, you, you can go home and, and cry over those, those tickets. You can say, you know what, there's a reason God doesn't want us to go there. There's a reason why God wants us to go here instead. And that's the kind of flexibility that Paul had. And then thirdly, Ray Stedman says, there's an importance of persistence. See, just because Paul was delayed as we read through the text, ah, you keep on hearing him say, boy, I want to come see you guys. I really do. But, you know what? I've been delayed. And before I come see you, uh, I got to go over here. But on my way to Spain, I might stop by. It's kind of like they're an afterthought almost. But he understood that he was going to persist in these plans. Ray Stedman says, he had set his heart on Rome and Spain, and he was going there. No matter how long it took, he kept plodding steadily toward the goal. It doesn't mean you just throw the goal out. You just have to be flexible enough to realize that, you know what, maybe God doesn't want me to do this right now. Maybe it's five years from now. We don't even know if he ever made it there. So it's not wrong to have plans. It's something that we should do. It's something that we need in our lives, in our ministries. It was Robert Burns who wrote this, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. (laughs) You can have the best plans in the world, but you know what? Sometimes they don't work out. Our plans frequently fail. That doesn't mean you don't make plans. But at the same time, you have to be flexible as you go through that. Well, let's make some quick applications here, just at the end of this this message, talking about Paul's missionary heart. Our missionary task, and I don't know if these are in your uh, uh, notes, so you can write them down. Our missionary task is not ended until every person in the world has heard of Christ. Do you understand? We are not done here on earth as believers until every person in the world has heard of Christ. And there's many places in the world they have never even heard of Christ. I know we find that hard to believe living in this nation, but it's very true. Um, You know, when we're tired, when you grow tired of Christian work, whether it's as a church or as individuals, and you think, you know, I'm just going to take a break, stop and say, is there still work to be done? Yes, there is. There's always work to be done. Secondly, when an opportunity of serving Christ in one direction is shut up, we ought to turn to, the, to another. I've dealt with people sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll have something on their heart or whatever, and they come and want to do this or that or whatever it might be. And I remember one time there was a, a when I was first a youth pastor, I had a youth worker that came to me and they, they wanted to have this big, concert kind of thing with all these people and it's going to cost way too much money and I said you know right now it's not going to work just you know and he kept asking me about it asking me about it asking me about it and you know I talked to the pastor and he's like yeah we can't afford it right now it's not going to work and this guy would not let up he just wouldn't let up 
And year after year, he'd bring this thing up in our planning meetings. You know, like, hey, maybe we can do the concert, this, you know, this, this certain event that he had planned in his mind. And, uh, you know, it was probably, probably three years later, we had the green light to do it. And God used it. But, it, you know, he did, I thank God he didn't just give up the first time. I, you know, I, I'm not going to do it. If, we can't, if I can't do it now, I'm not going to do it at all. Sometimes we need to go in a different direction uh, when God shuts a door. Uh, thirdly, a desire to serve God in some place is not unworthy, for God often works his will in us in such ways. Just because God has, you know, I've, I've shared sometimes that with people, you know, yeah, we, we support people uh, in different countries as a church, missionaries over there. And some of them, they look at you across it. Well, you know, there's a lot of starving children right here in the United States. Maybe you need to feed them first. Well, that's, that's a warped perspective. You know, I'm sure there's starving children all over the world. But where is God leading us? Where has God connected the, the dots for us as a people and as a church? So one place is not more unworthy of the other. God will lead us in the direction that he wants us to go. Um, fourth thing, although the task remains unchanged, God often accomplishes its fulfillment in ways we do not anticipate or desire. Once again, that falls back into the idea of being flexible. God may want to use you in a way that you want to be used, but he may not have the same timeline, or he may not have the same way. I never really envisioned myself being in ministry at all, especially in a pastoral way. It just, it never interested me, even after I became a Christian. The only reason I went to Bible college was to learn about the Bible. But while I was at Bible college... You had to do an internship. And so my senior year, they said, here, here's the Sunday school stuff. Kids are downstairs. Have fun. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And that led to 15 years in youth ministry, which I would never have planned. And I remember being a youth pastor and thinking, you know what? All these guys are compromising. All these other youth pastors, they're just climbing the ladder of success. I'll never be a, quote, senior pastor. That's, That's compromising. That's so wrong. I'm a youth pastor, and I'll be a youth pastor till I die. Well, that wasn't God's plan. And, you know, now it's kind of like I look at youth pastors and go, how did I ever do that? How did I ever do that? See, God changes your desires. Fifthly, although God could supply his missionaries' needs miraculously, he could, and he does on occasion, by the way, he usually does, though, through the gifts of his people. You know what? We are so blessed to be part of a church who has a heart for missions, who is committed to increasing the missionary budget every year. I mean, we're not a real big church. We don't have a huge, blowed-out budget. But you know what? I'm so thankful when I look at the budget that a segment of that money is for our missionaries. It's for sharing Christ in foreign countries or here in the United States. It's for getting people out on the mission field. To help them experience that. Um, that's, that's so important. We're not here just to build a, our little kingdom. We're interested in the kingdom of God across the world. And then sixthly, the fellowship of the people of God is more to be desired than the, fellow, the friendship of emperors or kings. See, Paul was going to Rome, if you stop and think about it, the seat of the great Roman Empire. The home of all the Caesars. Everything awaited him there. But he wasn't looking to the, the great, that, that great world to help him out. His friends were Christians. 
And he wanted to be with them. He wanted to have fellowship with them that helped him and, and those that he helped. You know, I hear of, of some churches once in a while, you know, they're trying to write a grant or they have some big ministry thing and they're trying to appeal to all these secular companies to give them money so that they can fulfill their ministry goal. And I'm thinking, that is just so wrong in my mind. Because I don't think God provides that way for his church. Years ago, we were approached by a telecommunications company and they said, you know what? We're willing to pay you a lot of money every month if you'll let us put a cell tower in your little steeple up there won't cost you a dime. We're going to do everything. Don't worry about it. Be five to $10,000 a month, whatever. And, you know, I remember being kind of excited thinking, wow, we can use that money for a lot of things. And I remember as elders, we prayed about it. And it was just like, you know, no, we're not going to do it. Not that other churches can't do it, but for us, we just didn't feel God would, he could provide through the, the gifts of his people. And you know what? It's so blessed to be part of a church. And if you're new here, maybe you're you know, just visiting whatever, you know, everything you see around you on this campus is paid for. We owe nobody anything. And it's not, it, it, this is from years of men who've long gone before us. But you know what? It's so freeing because I talk to pastors every week. It's like, oh, our budget, you know, we got our mortgage. We got, and I, I just can't even relate. It's like, really? Well, don't you have those problems? Uh, no. <laughs> but you're just a small church. I, I know, but I just thank God for the generosity of his people. And God will provide in his way. Well, the last thing that we see here in verses 30 to 33 is Paul's praying heart. He says, I urge you, brothers, and this isn't in your outline, so just write down Paul's praying heart. I urge you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. When's the last time you pulled somebody aside and said, you know what, I would just really appreciate your prayers. I'm having a tough time at work or I'm in the midst of a transition or whatever. See, we lack that kind of transparency in the body of Christ. We want to come with our little pasty smiles on our face and, oh, everything's fine. Praise the Lord. You know, when we're really dealing with some big issues, whether they be work, marriage, finance, health. And see, this is the place where you come together and you lock arms and you say, you know what? I need prayer for this. We have a prayer time right before church. Every week, I think at 9.30, over in the classrooms. Why isn't that room filled up? We just don't believe in prayer? Why? Why aren't we over there praying for this service? I mean, I get it. You've got to get here a half hour, maybe 15 minutes before the service, and that takes a little more work, and I get it. But it's not every day. <laughs> just once a week. See, we need to evaluate our priorities, beloved. He says, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. You know, Paul knew that fellowship with other believers would cause him to be refreshed. That's what he longed for. I mean, I pray that... When Saturday night comes around, I pray you get you begin to get a little excited. You begin to think, wow, I get to go to church tomorrow. 
get to see the brothers and sisters in Christ. Get to sing praises together with the body of Christ. Get to hear the word of God, the inspired word of God taught to encourage me. I get to be built up in my spirit, edified. Or is it like, oh, that's right, we got church tomorrow. Oh, man. Time to get a day off. We need to pray about that. Ask God to give us a heart like Paul's heart. Ask God to show us what we need to make that happen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's heart. We thank you for the encouragement that we receive by just looking at the wonderful ministry that you entrusted to him. And Lord, how he kept things intact, that he didn't get prideful. He wasn't pompous. He was humble. He was broken before you. And he was thankful to be used by you in a way that only you could use him. And Lord, I know that there's individuals here today who know you as their savior. They've trusted you. They're born again. They've been transformed by your, your power. And yet they're not serving you. And only you know the reason why. But Father, I pray that you would put such a burden on their heart that they would not rest. They wouldn't be able to rest. That God, that you would show them that they are of worth to the body of Christ. And that you would cause them to just come to you and say, yes, use me, however it is you desire to use me. But use me to minister to the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ, as I said before, there's no other, where, no other door, there's no other road. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And that's very clear. And so we pray that you would consider the call of Christ upon your life. That you would surrender your life to him, repent of your sin, turn away from your sin, and turn to the Savior. It doesn't have to be an elegant prayer. It can be a simple prayer as the man prayed in the New Testament. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He'll answer that prayer if you pray it from a sincere heart. And if you do, we'd, we'd like to know about it. You can just tell us, communicate th- that to us so we can get you some materials to help you to grow in your new relationship with Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.